All right. Have you uh, spent much time in Chicago, the city of Chicago? I've been there four times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are your what, what are your takeaways from your uh, Chicago? Is this a place where that you would move to? Do you like just to visit a little it's fast way, for you? It's way too big and fast for me. Way, yeah. Way too big. And in fact, I felt because you know I told you about the experience of going to Boys Town. You know. The, oh yeah, we did talk name, about that. I forgot. Yeah. It's named a different so called Boys Town. Yeah. Right. But. Um, there was still always an element of kind of being on guard, mm-hmm. kind of looking over my shoulder. Sure, I sure. felt I felt a little bit on edge. Mm. That's interesting. I I didn't feel this was my first time to Chicago last weekend. I didn't feel that feeling at all, thankfully. But I actually had no idea how city of a city Chicago was. I mean, uh, yeah, landing landing at O'Hare and uh, getting on the train. I was supposed to go to a specific stop to uh, meet Adrian, and I just got on the train. You know, I know how to do that. And sitting there and looking at the uh, the the map of the stops and I was like oh wow my stop is like 15 stops away so right <laughs> I was like wow and then you know I learned that I'm just on one specific line and there are of the L I think they call it yep um anyway a uh, huge city I, I wasn't expecting that but I'm glad I went really incredible time uh when I was on that subway I was just looking around and it's easy to remember what famous superstars or musicians or whoever are from Chicago because they have a billboard here or this foundation or that foundation and I actually uh never realized that common is from Chicago. I know mm-hmm. that uh, I shared some of his uh, latest album, uh, A Beautiful Riot. I think it's called A Beautiful... Beautiful Revolution. Beautiful Revolution. Um, you you got the vinyl and all that. So he's, yeah. he's an artist that uh, is uh, uh, still around and doing his thing. Lots of really great guitar, you know, music that I would classify as mm-hmm. certainly being up to par with classical or, or anything else. It seems like the people my age who were listening to him decades ago, mm-hmm. it's like he's matured and advanced with us yeah you know yeah. so it's and, and there's some artists who aren't doing that unfortunately some some of my faves haven't really aged <laughs> in the way that i would love but. yeah you can hear you can hear the history but also speaking to the issues of the day i think yeah so. yeah anyway so in re- being reminded that common was from uh chicago is from chicago and seeing his philanthropic things everywhere on the billboards uh, i went back and just listened to some of his interviews that's what i like to do with celebrities sometimes just mm-hmm. see what they were talking about during the pandemic or whatever and i came across uh, one of his Breakfast Club interviews, and for the downbeat, I want to share a bit of that this week. Uh, he's he's talking about um, being seen as you know one of the the good guys or or one of the black folks in the community that uh, institutions can partner with and and work with. And uh, when it comes to the issue of being the the good one of the good ones, the so called good ones, he has a, a really good point. Let's listen to what he has. They to feel say. like they love me, or they like, oh man, you know. Common is, you know, cool or this, he a cool brother. Like he a good, you know, but I want them to feel that way about my friends on the South side or my friends from South Carolina, or my friends from New York. Like, and it's like, man, if you gonna sit there and hold Steph Curry and, and, and LeBron or, you know, and I love them brothers, then you gotta respect the same, hold the same value for, for George Floyd or, or for Philando Castile or, you know, or and Rakia Boyd and, and, and Sandra Bland. And, you know, I'm thinking my, about my thing the, like, the famous, you know, speech turned composition fanfare for the common man, you know. Uh, 
I think it's interesting for them to have gone down that rabbit hole and, and, and what I wanted to bring in, what it just inspired in me. Scott, I wonder if you think classical music, the institution of it, you know, the, the industry of it has a problem with just the everyday person, the so-called common woman or common man, especially those who are black or come from communities of color. We have seen how the classical industry can engage the most trained of us, you know, or the most, uh, right. the ones with the most proximity or whatever, but is the concert hall anywhere close to being able to get folks who have nothing to do with the industry who are from these communities of color into the hall? I think you have a better chance of getting them to tune into a classical station every once in a while than mm -hmm. you do getting them into an orchestra hall. Um, because, you the, know, there's the time, a, the cost. There's I mean, a, exactly. But also, you know, the uh, attire. You know, what is expected mm -hmm. of you to, you know, I, I know that you've said that you're not going to do that. You don't wear church socks anymore, but, you know, not <laughs> period, not, not everybody's there, you know, not everybody's at that level yet. Yeah. But um, I think that we have a, we have trouble reaching the, the every person, the everyday person, no matter the color, just because of sure. there's a there's an elitist fog yeah. around it yeah. uh, that you need to have some sort of an advanced degree to enjoy it or something like that. When really a lot of people just like it, you know, and and an experience that I feel like a lot of the people at the heads of these classical institutions don't have is being in community with uh, with most folks who are from a different perspective or a different background. Specifically, I'm thinking about, again, when we went to Sphinx back mm -hmm. in 2020, mm -hmm. you are surrounded by black folk, black and brown folk who, you know, come with the same mission and have the same understanding of where the industry needs to go. So there's just a level of the conversation that doesn't exist in other spaces because of that. I, I wonder if you have uh, any striking memories or, or just anything you learned from being able, having the privilege of getting that perspective, that, that you know, that, that perspective that just does not exist in most, maybe none of the classical institutions. When I walked away to get drinks for the group that we were talking with, mm -hmm. and you said that they leaned over and said, all right, what's up with this white dude? <laughs> that was the first experience for that. Okay. But also, let me give you an example of, uh, it's one thing to listen to your person of color friend tell a story about an issue that they face, and you go, mm, okay, I, I believe you, I understand that that happens, I'm sorry that that happens. But then to hear that same story from everyone yeah. in the room yeah. and the the example that I'll give is you've often talked about how you feel like you have to do 110% 120% yeah. because of the color of your skin sure. you have to do something extra mm -hmm. um i i heard a story about that in plain talk from uh, virtually everyone standing around me at one point in time or another. So it, that just became crystal, crystal clear. It reminds me of when the Me Too movement came to a head a few years ago. This was even before I moved to Minnesota, but I remember getting on Facebook and every woman on my feed just had something to say, you know, yeah. some experience. I mean, it, and that was one of my big awakenings as, uh, you know, a, a, a same gender loving person. I'm not in 
I just don't have the context for sexuality as it applies to women. So mm-hmm. like just reading that just was a big shock to me because sure. so many of those things I've just never had proximity to. So, you know, it's, it's just so important to have that real dialogue and to, uh, and, and to really unlock those real conversations in spaces where the majority experience is different from your. And now it's easy, very, very easy to weaponize or be a harmful presence in those spaces if, if you know you don't come to it with a spirit of of respect and humility and just listening you know if i'm going um you know watching a panel about uh women in music for example mm-hmm. that is not my opportunity to walk up to the mic and showboat or or do whatever or or most importantly ask the question oh what what can i do you know i, I hope we've learned that that is that yeah. is not one of the panel questions you need to ask as we begin to come back to real life with these conferences anyway um and and you know o- overall just acknowledging the privilege of 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 being able to do that if any of us have the opportunity to really get that perspective that real perspective from communities that we're trying to engage and include in our work it's it's something really important so uh, my my very long way of saying um shout out to uh, common the city of chicago all of the folks with a little bit of money doing philanthropic things there and trying to change the arts and everything else around it, just like we are here. Let's get into it. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 120. Thank you very much for being here. Returning listeners, thank you for returning and uh, keeping this podcast and this project something that is very relevant and a huge part of the arts ecosystem. Thank you so much for supporting this project and helping it grow week after week. To new listeners, thank you for being here with us. This podcast, it's a show that takes the phrase classical music, breaks down all of the status quos and the ideas around it, applies it to the real world, and in essence to in an effort, uh, uh, sorry, to uh, decolonize classical music. More information on the Triloquy podcast at triloquy.org. You can find past opuses and your way to donate there on the website. Scott, I was, uh, <laughs> again, like I say, every week I think about, you know, that that theme music and the vibe of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, we, when we get to, uh, you know, the time to get the next theme, we have to think about the music we're going to want to walk up the steps to to get our Emmy. So maybe something. Hmm. <laughs> so hmm. so what what is the vibe you want to, you know? I don't know. Maybe ascending chords. <laughs> yeah, we'll get we'll we'll get there. We have to, you know, something do we majestic. Have to do first. <laughs> it's got to be majestic. Uh, shout out! I want to uh, do do our little housekeeping here. Huge uh, thanks and shout out to the Shuttleworth Foundation for their continued support of the Triloquy podcast. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information on them at shuttleworthfoundation.org. I want to thank uh, Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra for having me in Chicago. I'll talk a, a little bit more uh, about it in this open. 
Opus. But again, really incredible time. Um, really love being in my element, you know, similar to Sphinx, but I'll say in a, in a more real way, you know, in a more grassroots from the streets way. And, oh, okay. uh, and I think uh, one without the constructs and the confines of the uh, of the traditional orchestra concert. I mean, it's, it's closer to a service. And Adrian is really good. He has a talent for really uh, incorporating everyone in the space. So it's not people sitting down and being quiet and watching something. It's an experience. And it's where more concerts need to go. I think uh, we're seeing a lot more of that in art spaces, you know, in addition to, you know, thanking Adrian, I want to thank uh, Sam Bergman and Outpost uh, Minnesota for having me at the hook and ladder uh, last night to do uh, a little speaking and a little reading. And like the Rise Orchestra concert, um, the event that Sam Bergman uh, hosted and put on, it was a mixed format. So there was, you know, actually a little musical theater. There were some great string quartets that the show actually ended with a string quartet by Carlos Simon, who's uh, been on the uh, the Triloquy podcast. And, you know, with lots of talking in between and audience engagement and just making sure folks are, you know, actually there and, hmm. and paying attention and having a good time. So I think in many ways we're saying, I know I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse, but in, in many ways we're seeing the ways uh, in which the the live performance space is changing post quarantine, and how there's more intentionality in just engaging the folks there, and not just musicking at them or, or or speaking at them. You know, just really incorporating, and it's really incredible to see. So huge shout out and uh, thanks to Adrian Dunn and Sam Bergman. But uh, before we got into the first movement, I actually wanted to read. Um, a little bit of the James Baldwin that I shared at the um, Outpost event. So basically, okay. there was a, a new uh, string quartet performed. And to put some context around it, um, I read uh, an excerpt from a short story by James Baldwin called Sonny's Blues. And um, even out of context, I think this part of the of the prose is really interesting to uh, to to hear so so this is James Baldwin he says all i know about music is that not many people ever really hear it and even then on the rare occasions when something opens within and the music enters what we mainly hear or hear corroborated are personal private vanishing evocations but the man who creates the music is hearing something else is dealing with the roar rising from the void and imposing order on it as it hits the Air. What is evoked in him then is of another order more terrible because it has no words and triumphant too for that same reason. And his triumph when he triumphs is ours. Mm. Think about that. The, I had never considered the idea that our reaction to a musical performance may have nothing to do with the spirit of the uh, the person who's sending out the music. You know, James mm -hmm. Baldwin here again is saying that even in the moments when we actually do have a reaction to music is our reaction and not our uh, a communication between audience and musician. Anyway, going into the story, it basically flips that on its head and offers an example of when a listener actually does feel the spirit of the performer and how that can uh, be such an incredible experience but it just requires listening and listening on a really deep level and that that, that really touched me uh getting to um present that and uh and and i'm gonna continue to think about it as we move forward uh in our work so wesley, Sn wesley snipes in white man can't jump said something similar you know he, he said you listen to gladys knight and yeah. the tips, but you don't hear them yeah 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 that's all, that's it 
I mean, Midnight Train <laughs> to Georgia, I can barely play that tune. Because that right? I think about myself giving up and going back back home. But anyway, this is not my therapy session. Movement one. Okay, don't want to give up too much. <laughs> we, I mean, we just started. Um, all right, so in last week's triloquy and last week's fourth movement, we talked about a case of uh, blackface in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Well, guess who had something to say? Guess what publication felt the need to respond and to let them know they will not be outwoked by these millennial and Generation Z students who have no idea what they're talking about. Guess who it was? Um, I, that's a pretty easy one. That's that's going to be Slip Disc. <laughs> I didn't even think... It's good that you brought this in because I didn't even think to go over and look. I, I wasn't looking for it. It made yeah, it across my timeline. Okay. Anyway, so uh, just to catch folks up, a quick rewind last week. So um, at the University of Michigan, which we did not name, Last week, you know, I, I, the, the story was still kind of new, so I was I was being sensitive. But at the University of Michigan, um, at uh, in a class taught by composer Bright Shing, a so-called legendary performance of Othello was shown with Othello in complete and utter and racist blackface. So there was huge backlash. Um, I read in this article on Slip Disc that Bright Shing has actually stepped down from teaching that class, and the the class is actually going to be split between two different teachers. So it was it was a thing. But some people think, and Bright Shing apologized and offered a statement. Well, some folks believe that he didn't have to apologize; that he did nothing wrong. I'm reading here from uh, Slip Disc. The uh, title is "A Composer Speaks Up in Defense of Embattled Bright." Shing. Okay, um, the composer and conductor Kevin Scott is angry at the University of Michigan's handling of a student's protest against Bright Shing's use in a lecture of Lawrence Olivier's film of Shakespeare's Othello. Um, I'll read a little bit of the, uh, the statement from Kevin Scott. Uh, he says, first, Bright Shing is one of today's finest living composers. His Name re- three pieces. <laughs> Look... <laughs> <laughs> With, I mean, it's, it's, it's so easy to jump to the defense of someone for the sake of some political idea or message, the way everything has become a little yep. bit political in, in that way. Anyway, um, I remember meeting Bright back around 1987 at a Brooklyn Philharmonic family concert where he performed one of his compositions for solo piano. Which was, was called? He was very friendly and gregarious when we talked, and I had hoped to hear more of his music in the coming years, which I did. So first and foremost... We have a uh, a depiction of Bright Shing that's supposed to tell us how could this person ever have the lack of vision to understand that this is something that's inappropriate showing blackface. I think we we tend to jump to the fact that people are just being nefarious and 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 trying to cause problems. I think in the year of 2021, I, I want to be on the record as saying in the year of 2021, if you are teaching at a school, especially at a school that has a reputation for excellence in a certain field like music and at the University of, you know, if you are in that position, and you don't understand that blackface is a problem, that is a problem. Okay, I want to be on record saying that. With that being said, I don't think Kevin Scott is even um, allowing people to 
you know, have the have the benefit of understanding or having the example of maybe culturally he would not understand why this is a problem. But um, but now he's learned something and he made a statement or whatever. Kevin Scott starts by, you know, painting the picture. Oh, this is a brilliant musician. He was so nice and gregarious when he talked. I'm a black man. We had a great time. So how could this person possibly, you know, be racist or or have done uh, something wrong? I, I think it's so easy for us to jump to the, that, the, the personal in that way when when these sorts of things uh, come up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll read a little bit uh, more in addition to uh, coming to the defense of Bright Shing, unnecessarily so in my opinion. He wants to um, to shit on the writer of that uh, article that called out the the issue and and uh, one of the students that was in the class when it happened, Sammy Sussman. Um, he, uh, Kevin Scott says here, first I never hear tell of Sammy Sussman either as a composer or journalist or performer. I will review his work after I finish writing this post as well as read some of his writings that said this young man and his classmates cringed at seeing this classic film which is heralded as one of the finest screen adaptations of Shakespeare's important classic though I also hold Orson Welles version da 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 he's going into that now to say that this film demeans blacks in any way is an outright joke unto itself as mentioned up until uh, the last three possibly four decades we have seen many actors both leading and character play roles outside of their birth race da 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 so he goes on to say uh the, the straights play gay characters and you don't see people acting crazy and da 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 and blah 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 i uh I'm, I'm frustrated by this because i think it's so easy for folks in an older generation to brush off to the side something a younger person says because how could you possibly know anything and x y and z and you don't have the experience i wanted to uh, bring that point up specifically just to get your feedback or your thoughts at you know, at 50, I think it's important for you to constantly to always have the perspective of younger folks. Is that something that you value at, at this point in your life? Of course, of course. But in this instance, um, and you, you might remember last week, I said, I did not think that him losing his job was the answer. Mm-hmm. There should be a repercussion, but not a loss of a job, because you talk about being now in a position to do better right right <laughs> um and 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 i didn't say that he lost his job i read that no, he's he, not teaching he, the class right right so that's that's an important distinction but um that movie was made in what year uh 80 what did he say I, I'll, I'll find it uh, uh I'll, I'll find it in here but go ahead i mean that's an ancient film yeah and we have grown since then we have learned that this is not okay so just because it's a it's a heralded performance, um, there's loads of movies from my era that were heralded performances, and I look back on them now and I cringe. Can you name some? Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, Weird Science. <laughs> just listing them off. <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I know I saw that one recently, and I'm not. I'm sure it was something racist in there, but I'm just not thinking of it right now. <laughs> uh, date rape. 
Sure. Oh, that's right. Um, that's right. Across the board. That was and 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 we in the moment we went yeah. <laughs> and and but that's not cool. And it's so, after a while you just realize that's not cool. And the thing is, it's so easy for it to seem like or sound like someone of my generation is, is saying okay, boomer or shut up, boomer. No, it's it's not that. But I think there has to be this mutual understanding between generations that we we all have something to learn from each other. But but that includes the older generations to the younger i'm getting to the i was telling you before we cut on the mics when i was in chicago and you know hanging out with folks in the orchestra i'm getting to the point to where i'm not the youngest person or or in the younger group in the room so yeah, you know I'm, I'm learning things from the 21 and 22 year olds a lot of this uh, a lot of the slang maybe or i guess the really what i'm learning is that the inhibitions are really going away um, you know and with that the respectability is really going away so the young musicians now you know talk way more shit than i did when i was their age oh. because you know and in the you know and i think you can say the same thing for the older generation the older generation anyway we can't you know, uh, just dismiss Kevin Scott can't dismiss what Sammy is saying just because he's this youngling that he's never heard of. That's that, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. Uh, just because somebody says you need to watch this, it's a classic performance. It got all it got great reviews in 1945 or <laughs> right. whatever. Well, it's offend it's offensive now. Mm-hmm. So. And, and we're living in now. We're living in today. The, the, the last thing before we leave this that I wanted to mention, and, you know, I, I feel like this is one of the things that makes the Triloquy podcast, the Triloquy podcast. Listen, we have to be able to identify, and this is advanced <laughs> in, in certain communities, we have to be able to identify when people of color, black people, are being used for the sake of white supremacist structures, okay? I'm not gonna make any personal statement against Kevin Scott other than the fact that it was very strategic for this publication, Slip Disc, to have a black man saying what he's saying. Now, tell me that I'm, I'm stretching, tell me, what, 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 are your, what do you think about that? What do you think about what I just said? That they strategically found the black man you just said how sticky this is and now you want me to get on the flypaper with you but the thing is it's hard for me to sit here and say because folks are and so it's quiet that much because, harder for me because to do folk, it but folks are so quiet about that issue that when those of us some of us do stand up and identify these things we're we wrong we're ridiculous they they do this you all you have to do is get is turn on whatever cable news channel you want to and to to prop up whatever point to prove that we're not supremacists we're not racist we're not bigots they're gonna find the one <laughs> so look listen allies, Tell me I'm wrong. allies this is the challenge this is the challenge you have to be read you have to understand and be in actual communication and uh and fellowship with black people and not just your black friend see that's the thing that's the part right there i feel like at this point if you live in a city of, of more than a, a certain number, you probably have a friend of color if you're a, a, a white person. But how many people, you know, and I'll put myself in this, how many of us really immerse ourselves or have been, uh, uh, gay, uh, you know, given access to communities where the predominant way of thinking or the predominant experience or perspective is not our own? Mm. I feel like if we have more of that, 
it's easier for folks to really see through the lines and how, you know, race is mixed with white supremacy and these, you know, so-called political conversations and, you know, just being able to openly and matter of factly name the fact that it's very strategic to have a Candace Owens on Fox News. It's very strategic to have, you know, fill in the blank on this. And I see that here with this article. So take what you want from it. The other podcasts aren't going to talk about it. So well, I'll just mention it here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to to trans this gets a flat, by the way. Um, obviously, sure. To transition out of this accidental and get into the next, uh, I wanted to highlight the University of Michigan Wind Ensemble. So like the North Texas Wind Ensemble, uh, Michigan gives us, gives the world all of those band recordings. And it, and it's, you know, it's so pivotal for folks who came up through band in college, even in high school, to be able to have those recordings. You know, the New York Philharmonic is not going to record the wind ensemble pieces. We have we have to have these top level uh, college ensembles and the University of Michigan, without a doubt, is one of them. So we're going to listen to one of their performances here since Kevin Scott is uh, going to bat for blackface because of Shakespeare. We're going to listen to a, a little bit of a colonial song by Percy Ranger. Let's take a listen. beautiful music isn't it really soothing i feel very, swaddled very very you know shores of some gaelic beach <laughs> i think it's a um a prime example of how colonialism can come in the prettiest of packages but underneath it all colonial song mm, nice one <laughs> how you would you would hesitate or or have to figure out a way if you had to do a break on the radio about a piece called Colonial Song. You how how would you how, how would you freak that? How would you spin that? Well, I'm gonna have to spend some time with it. I can't just spit out gold here and write. Okay, front of you. well, I have to. Well, I'd this, have to work well, on it. Well, this, this is your warning because you're gonna get that one playlist sheet where you weren't really paying attention to see Colonial Song. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so uh, my next, I, I have one more accidental before you uh, get to yours. Um, and this is getting a sharp from me. I was really excited to read this. I'm reading from the Philadelphia Inquirer headline, Aspirational Dressing is So Last Century. The Philadelphia Orchestra's new dress code proves it a little bit from the article here. And uh, I'm reading down here. Uh, Instead of the black tailcoat, white shirt, white paquet waistcoat, and white bow tie combo that for centuries was the epitome of high society menswear, the male players of the 2021 Orchestra Philadelphia Orchestra are paying pairing black suits with black shirts and a long black tie. The women's attire will remain unchanged from the current full-length black dress, skirt, or pants. So for folks who don't know, if you go to an orchestra concert, most orchestras, the men have been wearing, you know, the uh, the Downton Abbey uh, servant's costume. That's what I always called it. Wow. <laughs> is, is that not what it is? That's... 
You, that's you, quite you love good. things that are English or whatever, so that's what they were that's wearing, quite wasn't good. it? That's th- very good. And I think that ties back to the idea of music, uh, musicians being servants, being the help. You know, we don't want to hear from you. Play your play your little fiddle and stay over there and don't touch these hors d'oeuvres. You know, like that. The whole <laughs> <laughs> not even the photographer, not even the, not the photographer baggage. nor the band gets to go through the buffet line. <laughs> but anyway, so that's just that that bit of colonialism cross the ocean into so-called American classical music and that's what the men been wearing in these orchestras I recently you know and my I told you a couple weeks ago we were talking about the fall cleaning and getting rid of stuff yep I got rid of my tailcoat and all that bye goodbye and your church sucks it went, it, it went right back there in the dumpster <laughs> <laughs> anyway so the Philadelphia orchestra in in addition to a few others um uh, let me let me find where it, it uh, says that. I think it was San Francisco. Uh, yeah, um, it, it, it says here, uh, this season the New York Philharmonic has switched to black collared shirts, jackets, and no tie for men. The San Francisco Symphony is also trying a new all-black outfit, long black tie optional. So the Philadelphia Orchestra, in addition to an, a couple of other orchestras, are changing this and just putting everybody in all black. Again, as the article said, the, the women have always been in all black. Now it's the men as well. So... What do you think? Do you think dressing the orchestra, so-called quote-unquote dressing the orchestra down, making them look more relaxed, specifically the men, do you think that will uh, diminish pressure for audiences when it comes to dressing up, you know, finding your pearls let to me, go to the concert, whatever? Let me tell you a story about attending a performance of the Omaha Symphony, guest conducted by Bobby McFerrin. Okay. Do we need, is, is, is this something... Is this something dramatic? Go for it. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's so not. Um... He said, he turned around to the crowd and he said, when you're listening to music at home, are you in a suit and dress shoes? No, you're there in your comfy pants Mm -hmm. and your hoodie and your slippers. So I had the librarian put the scherzo from Beethoven's Ninth in the music stand. And he told everybody to take off your jackets, loosen your tie, kick off your shoes. And we're going to play the snot out of this music. And let me tell you, they played the snot out of that music cold. They didn't know that they were going to be playing that that night. And for folks who don't know, this is what this is what Scott is talking about. Now listen to these triplets. So you have to you, the strings have to have their um, their listening ears on because you're playing softly and and separated staccato, so it has to be clean. Oh, and the winds. You have to count. Is it, you, you will get lost. Like, you know how a lot of times you can just feel the, the, I, the rhythm of I the know music. I it very well. And, yeah, no, you're going to get lost. And then... I bang my head to this. I'd have been pissed at him. No, no. I, especially if I'm playing contrabassoon. They played the snot out of that. Anyway, it, but what was the point of that? Like just saying how being in the... Because we were point, talking about dress codes, right? Yeah. His point was like, here you are all pinched up in a in a tie or a tight fitting, you know, tight around the neck blouse for the women. Uh-huh. Uh, and and you're in these uncomfortable shoes. How are you going to... How are you going to really play well if your body doesn't feel right? Sure. Sure. And I think that there's something to that. How are you going to listen to a, a 74 minute piece like Beethoven 9 if... Your shirt's First of too all, tight. Why would you? But go ahead. And and your drawers are all climbing <laughs> up. Look, I'm sure doing that. You know what, Thomas? Shout out to Thomas Wilkins. 
doing all of that helped the audience sort of lower their shoulders too, right? Mm-hmm. That I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that eased everything. So again, yeah. may, maybe maybe uh, this uh, all black will, and and it's not like all black is slumming it, you know. And oh, what, I think that's gangster. And, that's tough. And what I told you is, you know, and we we you know again always a little dust in the corners, right? I think the next step, really, you know, what does the cl- well? Let me let me ask you this first before I get into my thing. What if it's just wear whatever, and and you know we're not talking about extremes. No one is going to be wearing a thong swimsuit, whatever, on stage. But that's always what, where they want to go, right? But but what if some people are just wearing jeans? It looks like a rehearsal. Like like what if how their dress just looks like a rehearsal? Is is that something that would diminish the experience or cheapen it? I don't. The music would be the same. The music might even be better to yeah, the point you were me, just making. It, yeah, it wouldn't take me out of it. Not for me. Not not me neither. But I get it. You know, it's all about the perspective. The Gesamtkunstwerk. You know, the the music plus the scenery and how beautiful the orchestra looks i think you know even even so the next step is you know the women wear whatever all black they want you know it says full length but you know all black let let the men wear you know any sort of all black because a lot of us in in addition to saying goodbye to the uh, church socks <laughs> we have said goodbye to uh the tie as well sure. i don't i don't really i don't want to wear a tie especially after quarantine and yeah. I'm, I'm i'm trying to do decolonizer work you know that's just not my vibe um the last time maybe I went, maybe anyway, i'm just saying maybe we can get to that even just yeah. any sort of all black the last time i went to an orchestra performance i mean it's fun to to put on something nice and look good to go and uh, you know, be seen a little bit, but yeah, that's as, excuse me. That's the far, the furthest, excuse me again. That's the furthest that I went was a suit dress shirt, but no tie, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I, and I got, you know, I unbuttoned it enough to let a few chest hairs crawl out. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Got to You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> so that's right. So got to do a little advertising. So you've, so you've taken dates to the symphony. The symphony is like a date thing or, Couple, or has been. Yeah. On a few occasions. Sure. Mm-hmm. Were you successful? I'm just joking. <laughs> this is not that type of. <laughs> were you successful in and making sure that we got she had a concert. great time we and got was taken home respectfully before and we heard 9 the p.m. Whole, we heard the whole <laughs> before concert. the street lights came on. <laughs> and yep. <laughs> anyway, shout out to the orchestras who are uh, breaking that bit of tradition. I think it's big news. It se- it would seem like, and maybe even at the end of the day, it is not a huge deal you know especially maybe even a first world thing you know they're changing their costumes but i don't know as someone who had to put on the paquet and the tailcoat and all that for years i think this is huge and i think it's one step against not only the formality of it all but um ungendering the the uh, performance space because again it was very men in the tailcoat women in the all black so now everyone's in the all black and folks who don't abide by the binary you know uh, someone who is non-binary trans or whatever they're not going to be singled out or weirded out or or you know othered because of clothing or be pressure because everybody's wearing the all black so. i think all black's tight it's, i like yeah, to see and, it right and plus it, it, it looks really great so yeah. we're going to uh, transition into our final accidental with an orchestral arrangement of a tune that i uh, discovered for myself late in life but one that's really cool one i know that you know scott and one that has been uh, recorded really uh, excellently by the london symphony orchestra painted black mm. by the rolling stones.
regular rotation when I was at WUOT. <laughs> I mean, for real, regular rotation. What, what do you, uh, you know, again, having been there when the stones were rolling, <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you think of that arrangement? That kind of put me, that one of put me in the mind of maybe Alexander Borodin or maybe a Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Okay, sort of you're, a, you're getting like steps of Central Asia mixed with, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or a little bit of, um, you know, the, what is it, the um, snowball, the snow f- snowflakes. Uh, Rimsky-Korsakov had a... Oh, the snow fairy or something. Something like that, yeah. Somebody's going to flame me for that. But yeah. yeah anyway, it, yeah, we don't know everything. That very ornamental sort of orchestration. It All was right. good. So uh, one more accidental uh, for this week. It's yours. What accidental are you giving it? Well, I've got a mini accidental and a real accidental that I'm giving a sharp to both of them. Uh, I don't know if you heard or not, but uh, the previous administration took some national monuments and shrunk them down. Bears ears and grand staircase were shrunk to like 10% of its original size. And the Biden administration has put it back to where it was. Uh, I just wanted to give a a quick shout out here that um, as he promised during his campaign, he restored Bears Ears and Grand Staircase National Monuments to their original boundaries in a White House ceremony Friday, flanked by supporters, including Native American tribal leaders. It is their land. It should not have been... Yeah. So in the first place, right in the first place. But um, that's that gets a sharp. And uh, as we're recording on Indigenous Peoples Day, I wanted to point that out. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I had sat on this article to save it for Indi- Indigenous Peoples Day because uh, I found an article from Wisconsin Public Radio: "Change in the Future of Music: Hip Hop Artist in First Is First Indigenous Woman to Judge the Grammys." A Chickasaw Nation member. Uh, who goes by the uh, stage name of J25, seeks to bring a new voice to the Recording Academy. Now, you want, you want to talk about uh, representation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an important piece because we're talking about how the awards get doled out. Yeah. And the article talks about how uh, the nonprofit reported the 2021 Academy class is 48% female, 32% black, 13% Latinx, 4% Asian or Pacific Islander. So we must be shaving decimal points to talk about J25 mm-hmm. being an indigenous person who's going to have a seat at the table yeah. for the Grammys. But this also, more importantly, kicked in the door for a subgenre of music that I was not aware of, and that is indigenous hip hop. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that this had been going on. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously, uh, um, some indigenous actors and writers are having their day on uh, streaming services. Uh, Reservation Dogs mm-hmm. is doing really well and got, and got renewed for a second um, season. But um, I've been listening to J25 here for the last couple of days and seeing as how Bears Ears has been returned back to its original size, uh, a seat at the table with an indigenous person uh, at the Grammy um, panel. Uh, I wanted to listen to a little bit of J25 performing Land Back. This one is for the culture. What we fighting for is bigger than what you think. It's time to speak up. Native Americans need to be heard. Land Back. Yeah. 
process of elimination Tried to destroy our culture, forced by assimilation Still I ride for my natives without a hesitation This for all of my cousins up on the reservations Recognize when I'm speaking on don't get televised Missing murdered indigenous women Genocide, losing all of our men and our children Suicide, I'm pouring out my heart on these beats Trying to keep hope alive Preach, I hope I'm not speaking too bold Pouring my heart out on these beats That goes, that beat goes and and with yeah, that flute this is are you telling me this is a track that, that hold on cut it back up study our traditions and follow the great spirit they tried to take my freedom but never could take my mind through the wars and the pipelines my native still survive land back there's a lot here and there's a lot to talk about listen to here. her because when when she's talking about freedom and all of these different things, just the intersection of uh, people of color, you know, we use that word BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, you know, the intersections there and the and the joint uh, struggle and how it can come out in music. You know, one of the things you, you kind of pushed us here to the second movement officially, but j j just for for me to offer a couple words. So, and I I feel like I talked about this in um in one of the triloquies a couple weeks ago, but I listened to. A, a panel that featured a man, an indigenous uh, composer named Brent Michael Davids, and how he was talking about in most indigenous languages, there really isn't a word for music. The closest thing is like songing mm -hmm. or music. I remember that. And it's the yeah. act of. Right. So I think you know, be beyond just uh, taking music, especially indigenous music, and putting it into genre or thinking about genre. I've grown to really watch these performances and think more about the purpose of the music making, the message that is going out or the energy that is going out through the music, through whatever aesthetic of music it may be, but you know, so when I when I listen to this uh, to, to that uh, track by uh, by uh, J twenty is it J twenty five J twenty five Giselle yeah, yeah, I've, I've never heard this it's sure. incredible to learn this artist uh, Giselle Child Evans is her name she goes by the stage name J twenty five. That's that's that that's awesome. Yeah, Happy um, Indigenous Peoples Day. This isn't coming out, you know, on that we're recording that now, right. on, and and we'll get into a little bit more of that uh, in the triloquy. But um, I, I I think the the idea as we've maybe we've talked about here on Trilogy before the uh the concept of land acknowledgments and what it would actually mean to give the land back and more than just the acknowledgement they're big conversations and i'm really happy uh at least from my perspective to see these conversations grow and, and really be moved closer to the front growing up in memphis there is a a preserved uh uh, like village I don't even know how it's called but it's it's a Chuckalisa museum it's like a they they have this little small village that I guess they found at one point uh, after the extermination you know by uh, right. by the west and just preserved it just so we could get a peek so beyond that there wasn't really much conversation in the south about the uh, indigenous experience and those conversations yeah. because yeah. they had all been wiped out but I mean maybe that was different in Omaha with, with, with you growing up there no, um, it was uh, just like everybody else. We got our units in school. Um, our art museum there has a pretty large collection of indigenous art. So it was around, but I've never heard. I, I've never heard an artist do it with hip hop, though. Yeah. Have you? yeah no, I, I, Did I answer your well, question? Well, I, well, I have, I've, I, well, I guess, yeah, I brought up the musicing or songing right. because um, th this isn't actually the first time I've heard indigenous hip hop. So that is something that okay. I'm becoming more familiar with, but I'm going to keep it real. That's, that's, that's the best I've heard. That one, that one definitely wins. I'm going to go back and, 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 and put 
all of her music in my phone. And That's also, some good stuff. yeah, also just the fact that uh, we now have an indigenous person sitting at the table uh, when it comes to the 2022 Grammy Awards. And it broke down what she was going to be, uh, where she was going to be working. Yes, here it is. Uh, in categories including hip hop, pop, jazz, rock, reggaeton, and gospel. Yeah, shout out to J25. Everybody go uh, check out her music and, and support indigenous art. But uh, we're now here in the second movement where we're going to take the second ending. We take a piece of music that we've been listening to over and over over the past week. And instead of repeating it fully, once again here, we talk a little bit about why we uh, were so moved by it. I'll, I'll, I'll jump us off this week, Scott. So Del and I, uh, it's October, you know, it's spooky season. So we've mm-hmm. been going and watching uh, some different things, Halloween episodes of our favorite shows, the movies, and especially leaning toward things that uh, I had never seen before. You know, there's a lot I missed. And mm-hmm. one of those things, one of those classic scary films is 28 Days Later. You've you've, you've seen that one, right? Yeah. Well, I, I had never watched it. Uh, I, was, I was so uh, intrigued by 28 Days Later. We just press play right after that on 28 Weeks Later, you know. But throughout both... Um, of the movies you have uh, this music by composer John Murphy that I, I, I really appreciated hearing. So when we think about, at least when I think about uh, the zombie movies that I've been familiar with, the musical aesthetic has been kind of, fast-paced, sort of panicky, you know, oh my gosh, we have to run, we have to hide, which, you know, when you're talking about zombie uh, movies is, you know, appropriate enough, I would say. But John Murphy took a different approach. So when people are hiding or uh, rummaging for food or even running from zombies, you have this persistent, almost soft, maybe even menacing music that's going on. It's not the heavy, loud, oh my gosh feel. It ratchets up tension. It's the more tense, but also I think of it as the more like pitiful, like, oh my goodness, when it comes to the end of humanity, it's not this thing that, you know, was this big uh, hoorah, maybe not even big explosions. It's just something that bit off and, you know, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Or or just rotted the spirit of people until, you know, you have just this pitiful reality. And I think John Murphy did an incredible job of getting that to me again we started with the james baldwin when uh, when we we're talking about reaction to music is usually our own shit our own baggage sure and not what the composer well i mean having come in blind to this movie and not you know personally being afraid of a zombie apocalypse you know how do i have that baggage uh so i feel like in listening to the music and watching the film i really got a chance to hear what john murphy was trying to say so shout out to john murphy i want to listen to a little bit more here of in the house in a heartbeat, the theme from 28 Days Later. to you when it comes to music, media, movies, art that are based 
in England or Ireland or somewhere. So mm-hmm. you're, you're the you're the correspondent. You're the you're the Western European correspondent. The man on the street. <laughs> oh, what do you what do you what do you think of this one? Because this is a, a, one of those London films, right? Or oh, it starts there. I, anyway. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I I, I liked it quite a bit, and I. Uh, um, this music for me kind of reflects that desperation mm-hmm. and how it opens up with things being, you know, really spread out and sparse. It reminds me of when they were trying to move around, yeah. you know, and they, and, and they get to that tower block where, uh, I think it's Donald Gleason, the name of the actor, the father and, mm-hmm. and the daughter, you know, with all the shopping trolleys at the base. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of the intensity of getting there. Um, it, the the music really does paint sort of an apocalyptic picture, and the the score. If you go and buy the soundtrack, it's that and like maybe two other cues between the two movies. But it's used over and over again, even over both movies, and it's oh, not maybe. it's not even old sound. Or you know, it, it doesn't sound too repetitive. You know, when I you see. hear that theme, it, like it fits so well into the puzzle of of the art that was created. It's it's really incredible. It's a puzzle piece. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Um but before I uh, I let you uh you know get to your second ending, you know, my my weekly thing. It starts off with the piano. We have strings, sure, there's an electric guitar plugged up, but listen, that has the ingredients of any of these other classical recordings that we platform on uh in our classical spaces. So why can that not be just a part of what we think of when we program and when we talk about classical music, so-called classical music, especially from an American perspective? And then certainly for this time of year, I know a lot of folks love, especially in radio, love to program for Halloween. That's when you can get some of the fun stuff that you can't play in February or <laughs> you can't play Night on Bald Mountain on Martin Luther King Day. You know? <laughs> But it is, but but you know, over the mountaintop, you know, you could read the mountaintop speech and how scary, you know. Anyway, I'm I'm giving up too much juice to y'all because that's how I would spend that. But it, right. it, it, anyway, you know, we 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 repeat it over and over again. But I mean, surely you could make a case for that piece of music in the right setting in a classical space, and you know, moreover, even affirm it as something that is classical. Could you imagine getting into your car about 10, 11 o'clock at night? And to 8 a.m., you hear that going to work. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, like, if you turn on your car and you start driving and it's like in progress, sure, like, right. like you just missed the intro, mm-hmm. that would creep your ass out, <laughs> wouldn't it? It would be a reaction, though, right? Right. That I would, would be, be a real. Like, that would be a real engagement. What movie did I just jump into? <laughs> anyway, John Murphy, um, go listen to uh, that track from Twenty Eight Days Later if you haven't, and you're feeling in a spooky mood. If you're feeling like you're in the season of it all. Anyway, what you got this week? Nothing spooky for me. I'm sticking with the indigenous tip here. Um, I started to get into music by Lewis W. Ballard. Who, if you uh, if you do a little bit of research online with him, uh, the broad strokes is he's known as the father of Native American composition, and I'm and I'm guessing hmm. where that hmm. moniker comes from is an indigenous person composing in a in a Western way, con- like a conservatory sort of right. educated sort of thing. However, if you look at the listing of some of his compositions. 
all of them are songs that deal with some aspect of indigenous life. You've mm. got things like Navajo corn grinding song, uh, the Taust round dance song, Dakota love dance song. So yes, there's uh, a, w- some Western sensibilities as far as the orchestration and everything, but the stories and the ideas are mm. indigenous American. And the piece that uh, the set that I got into was the Cochina dances and when we were listening to this before we turned on the microphones, uh, you said that, it, that this is technique heavy. Mm-hmm. But I hear them, and yes, the technique is there, but uh, a cochina is a doll that they would give to kids, you know, not only just to play with and to pass the time and everything, yeah. but they were decorated in a, in a way that they could be used to tell the stories of their folklore and, mm-hmm. and their history. So... Um, I can hear each doll's little dance to mm, it, you yeah. know. And the one that I landed on, uh, I actually heard a version of this with piano and cello and one with piano and bassoon. And for me, the piano and bassoon hit better than the, the one with the cello did. Period, but period. I, I, no, no shade, no shade. They're both great performances, but sonorously, this one was more pleasing. Sure. This is from the Kachina Dances. It's movement four called... Bees. See, with something like Flight of the Bumblebee, you know, it's it's going up and down and up and down because, you know, bumblebees are, are they're kind of crazy flyers. Right. You know, they, they, they don't have the best control over their directions. With this, with the bees, I can hear them totally die bombing my head <laughs> and, and getting aggressive. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, this tells a story. First of all, shout out to Jacqueline Wilson um, on, on Bassoon. I've, I've, I've been in uh, collaboration with Jack, Jacqueline Wilson uh, on some panel or, or something, I think maybe for um, International Double Read Society, but uh, incredible musician and, you know, some incredible uh, technique there. You know, you, you describe, you know, you said I described it as a technical piece and it very much is that, but that's nothing to, to sleep on. I, I, oh, think, heaven's I, I, I think a lot, you know, especially when I do master classes that there are so many students who come up focusing on the technical playing that mm-hmm. they don't know how to play a phrase or they don't know how to really sing something so that that is definitely something i, I lean heavy in I, I always make sure that um certainly bassoon students are thinking about more uh more lyrical music right um, as opposed right. to just the technical so you know I, I really wanted to make sure i said that but with all of that being said the technique is clean here and the technique is phenomenal huge shout out to jacqueline wilson that's an incredible piece of music you you know my um western classical taste so that's my bag yeah. like that is yeah. definitely my bag and i'm gonna have to um i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna have to buy that if that if 
this piece by uh, uh, Lewis Ballard is is just at a publisher or something. You know, after after we cut off the mics, I'm gonna I'm gonna go support a, a an indigenous composer because I wanna I wanna take a look at that too. My technique probably isn't as as good as Jacqueline's though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and shout out to the pianist. The pianist isn't named here, but if y'all um if y'all let me know who it was, I'll give her a shout out next week. Lewis Ballard, born in Oklahoma, 1931, died in Santa Fe, 2007. So oh, wow. rest in power yeah. to Lewis Ballard. Yeah, that's a nice find there. So happy Indigenous Peoples Day, everyone. We'll return to that topic a little bit in the fourth movement. But as we get to the third movement, I wanted to um, introduce and shout out Daniel Kumapayi. So uh, Daniel uh, is a musician who has an organization called Akojapo. So uh, Daniel Kumapayi um, is of Nigerian heritage, uh, born in Nigeria, and speaks to the issue of cost, money, when it comes to musical training in Nigeria and it's not just having the money to play for a, a, a to, to have a private music teacher or or those sorts of thing it gets all the way down to the issue of shipping music because you know it, as you can imagine it costs a lot of money to ship a box full of books to Lagos you know what, what would that cost be and how oh, much geez. time would it take you yeah, know I so, can't imagine so um, Akotjapo is uh, an organization um, that raises money toward funding things like that so that folks in Nigeria can um, really experience uh, what they want to in in their country and in their um, uh, own way. I'll read a little bit of the uh, mission here of Akotjapo. It says, Akotjapo is inspired by musicians in Nigeria who, despite lacking essential resources, still commit to their artistic disciplines. Our goal is to bring more equity and opportunity to composers and instrumentalists in Nigeria by providing educational programming for an enriching learning experience, hosting concert series to bring awareness to Nigerian composers, and delivering quality and affordable musical instruments and resources to Nigerian instrumentalists. So it's a great cause. I'll have uh, more information in the description of this again Daniel Kumapayi um, runs runs the ship over there so uh, we'll be hearing from him we talk about this organization the things that have inspired it and uh, actually also a little a little food a little Nigerian food but uh, to get us in the conversation I wanted to make sure I put um, another Nigerian artist on uh, everyone's radar so Scott have you heard of uh, Tiwa Savage have you happened uh, happened to heard of, of, of this artist heard it but I don't know if I could pick it out of a lineup yeah uh, Tiwa Savage, uh, the first time I heard her music or heard anything about her, it was um, a collaboration with Beyonce. Tiwa Savage is featured in Black is King. Um, ever since that feature, even before, but especially after the feature, um, she's been getting a lot of Western attention, you know, and it, it's always fun when we think about music that, that is uh, international, you know, uh, you know, music away from American sensibilities. For me, it's fun to hear Black music and even black music that you know works here in the states you know when, when we talk about black radio the black club you know that general hip-hop aesthetic and how it it branches off in different ways so i'm really excited to see uh more awareness even you know on the pop side of things more of us know the so-called pop side more of us know of uh, the name fela sawandi you know these days sure, you know sure. so the 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 western classical but i think it's also important to uh, affirm the full culture and experience 
of uh, of a country. So uh, to all of that, uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of uh, Tiwa Savage's Coroba. Uh, Coroba, um, in an interview I read, she was featured on uh, National Public Radio, NPR. Mm. And to this ta- uh, tune, she was talking about how um, Coroba basically is a way in this song of talking about taking their fair share back, their fair share of the resources, their fair share of the money, their fair share of the culture, you know, from folks who have it locked up. And, you know, I think that's a great way to uh, for me to think about the work of Akojapo, you know, really inspiring folks here in the States to empower folks over there in Nigeria to really live their full artistic lives. So here's a little bit of Koroba by Tiwa Savage. And here's my conversation with Daniel Kuma Pai. Yeah, I was I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, and I moved here when I was five. Uh, most of the time, I don't think most people recognize that I am Nigerian just probably because I, I don't sound Nigerian. My parents, though, if you hear them, they usually speak Yoruba at home. Um, I grew up eating like, you know, fufu. Um, I didn't, okay. We didn't grow up eating too many American dishes. I think it's because I went to a predominantly white school that we had. You know, my, my dad doesn't really like to eat too much American food. He like he likes his amala and goosey soup. So okay. he's a pretty traditional person. But I think for me, my ties are just as I was in Michigan being a music education major, I just kind of kept thinking, you know, what does music education look like in Nigeria? And as I started to do more, you know, findings, I was like, wow, <laughs> there's not a lot of resources for people who are, you know, are either instrumentalists or who want to be music educators. So that's where a coaching ball kind of came up. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and we're definitely going to talk about that. But I'm, you know, I'm just a little curious. Did you grow up in sort of a, a cross-cultural household? Were you speaking Yoruba uh, growing up? What was that like for you? No, my parents speak both English and Yoruba. But for, I think for the most part, they wanted us to really assimilate in the U.S. I, I know some parents may teach hmm. their kids Yoruba, but um, for them, I think it was like, an assimilation because I know for my dad sometimes he's a pharmacist sometimes he's working and it's hard for people to understand him mm. and I think coming to the U.S. they really wanted to give us as much opportunity and I think they felt like their language barrier kind of prevented from that sometimes. I see I see yeah. that's that's interesting because the sort of uh, assimilation that uh, you're speaking to just reminds me of the differences in black experiences here in the United States. We've gotten really uh, comfortable uh, post uh, murder of George Floyd and talking about race and all of our DEI initiatives and and music. So, I mean, basically what I hear you're saying is that although your cultural ancestry is a little different, your experience is basically the same as as a Black American born person. Yeah, and it's actually interesting because I grew up in a predominantly like white, I went to predominantly like white school from like fourth grade until um high, like until I went to college. Mm-hmm. When I first came to the U.S., I lived in D.C. and I'll say my school setting was diverse then. But when I came to U of M, it was interesting because I felt like I met some people who, you know, I think every once in a while you've heard like, oh, this person talks like a white person, even though right. they're black. So it's interesting because I, when I came to U of M, I realized there are things within like the black community that I don't think I am well aware of or I have as much experience with. Because when I think about my upbringing, it was really within my Nigerian household. And then I interacted mostly with like 
white people. And then every mm. once in a while we had like another black person. But when I came to like, you know, U of M, it was so cool. We had like an African student association, a black student union. Like I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, it, it was kind of cool. Yeah, it seems to be the experience for a lot of black musicians to have grown up in predominantly uh, white spaces. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you were really excited about, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the more colorful side of of education and music as you were going along. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your entry into music. I know access is something that you're trying to uh, create for folks in Nigeria, but why don't you talk a little bit about your entry point into Western classical music? What did that look like for you? I think for me, I just went to a school that just had options. You know, I think mm. some schools don't have that. Like I went to a, a middle school that had a band teacher, a choir teacher and an orchestra teacher. So when they came in and they had like this instrument zoo, and they were asking, hey, you know, what are you interested in doing? Right off the bat, you know, I had three different options. And within those options, you know, I had different instruments I could sing. So I actually did choir for a little bit. But then I was like, man, I don't like this. And then I did band. But I was like, I don't like band. And then I just kind of found my way in orchestra. And I think I played bass just because they needed a bass player. And my parents did not want to pay to rent an instrument. So mm. the bass was the only free one. So if, if my parents wanted to rent an instrument, I probably would be playing cello right now. Sure. But yeah. I just played bass because I didn't have to rent. And then I think I, I took the bass home to start practicing in seventh grade. I was really cool with the bus driver because his her son played violin in our class. So mm -hmm. she let me actually put the bass inside the school bus. And that was like the first time I got to like practice. Wow. Yeah, I, I guess that is a plus being able to uh, get in good with the bus driver when you play an <laughs> instrument that big. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's that story is when I've heard a lot, too, even for myself. I play the bassoon because that was an instrument that my parents didn't have to go out and buy or, or go out and rent. And it worked out. But I think it's interesting how how that sort of uh, is a is a common thread uh, among many musicians. What, what do your parents think about your uh, bass playing, your music teaching now? Have they have they come along? Um, I think they have. I, I, I remember when I first was applying to school, they didn't have really any interest in me, like, you know, doing music. Because, again, my, my dad's a pharmacist and my mom's a nurse. And I think for Nigerian immigrants, they have very, like, high expectations. And not that music isn't a high expectation, but it isn't a, it isn't a norm. Sure. So I know when I was applying, um, there was a lack of support initially, but I think I really got them to get along. But I think one thing that helped out was um, I got a scholarship from U of M, which helped out with tuition, because I know for my parents, they're like, you know, why? Why am I going to, you know, go into debt for this man to play? A devil? <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. 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 Well, um, let, let's let's talk a little bit about Akojopo. So first of all, when I think about uh, classical music, Western classical music, and spreading it to more people, spreading it to more uh, kids. I can't help but to think about uh, the idea of colonization, you know, the, hmm. the, the, the idea that, you know, when I started my musical journey, I wasn't learning about Black musicians. I was learning about Beethoven and Brahms and, and all those folks. I feel like, from my perspective, that conversation would be expounded, really expanded when we're talking about providing access to European music in the non-European setting of Nigeria. So basically, why, why do you have this goal and this mission? Why is it so important to you to make sure uh, folks in Nigeria have access to this music? Yeah, so for me, that, that was something, actually, what was that book? 
I read a book. I forgot. It was like El Sistema. Um, let me see if I can find the name of the book really quickly. Oh, sure. Uh, oh, I believe it's El Sistema Orchestrating um, Venezuela's Youth. Because mm-hmm. when I first started Coach Paul, I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm a colonizer. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to spread the white man. And I, when I was reading this book, um, it really talked a lot about uh, within the Venezuelan Youth Orchestra, like the El Sistema program, like, I think for the most part, the public, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's had some successes, but I think kind of like, you know, the bad side or the dark side is, you know, it was kind of pushing just for the exposure of just to play, you know, classical works. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't as if we were trying to push for, you know, Venezuelan music. It just felt like more so, okay, we're trying to go on tour, play in these big halls for these white audiences and play this European repertoire. But for right. me, when I started coaching ball, I was thinking, you know, are, is there even interest for classical music? Because at first I thought there wasn't. But then when I look in like, you know, history wise, there are African composers such as like Ayo Bankale or Akin Uba. And these are people who were born even before my time. So the fact that there are these composers or organists or musicologists that existed in Nigeria, I'm like, wow, because I've never I never knew about them. So my focus is not like I like. I don't want anyone to be like, you know, you you're learning this instrument to go play Mozart. I don't care about that because I think what's cool about music is like people appreciate it when you're different. So if you want to play bassoon or if you want to play violin, that's not my concern. But I just want you to have the resource to do whatever you want. So I know a lot of times like there are some Nigerian works that people have never heard of because they're just not as not as accessible. For example, like if, if, if a composer in Nigeria wants to compose a piece that, you know, embraces their culture. It's very hard because for us, you know, if you need to commission a piece, uh, commission a piece, you can maybe get some sponsorships some grants to help out. But if a, mm-hmm. a composer in Nigeria, that's expensive, you know, you got to maybe pay performers, you got to have a space and some, some instruments they, they may not, you know, compose for because they don't have the time to learn about it or know someone who they can like, you know, see how they play it and create this feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's just like, I don't know. I just feel like if, I had the chance to do it. Why don't they? And it's not focused on go and play Mozart. It's focused on do what you want to do and do it however you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that way of thinking about it. And when you're talking about these uh, Nigerian composers and musicologists that we haven't really heard of it, it reminds me of the idea of just teaching folks more about themselves and more about their own culture, maybe parts of it that haven't always been highlighted when it comes to, you know, what we call classical music. Yeah. And actually, one of our guest sessions, we hosted um, a guest session like this virtual masterclass for some jazz musicians. So that's that's an area we've been trying to work on because um, some of the jazz musicians, they fill out the feed, feedback form and they mentioned how oftentimes, you know, when they're trying to learn jazz, there's not as strong of like an American like um, presence within Africa. So sometimes when people are trying to improvise, they don't have a lot of resources in terms of like teachers or people mm-hmm. who really have that experience with that jazz language. So that's some areas we're trying to improve on in our future programming as well. Yeah, you reminded me of the meaning of the word akojopo. I, I understand that it means harmony, but there must be a, a deeper meaning than just, you know, thirds and fifths and harmony as we tend to think about it, right? Yeah, so I, know, I, I knew I wanted the name to have some kind of musical reference. And for me, when I just think about harmony, I just, you know, I think of happiness, I think of peace, I think of like, everything that I would want. So that was just my interpretation. I, I think, I don't know, maybe people will have other meanings, but I remember <laughs> I asked my Yoruba teacher like, hey, what's what's the translation for harmony? And she, that was the name she gave me. And I was like, I like that name. 
<laughs> I yeah. like how it looks. So yeah. I was like, look, let's go with that. Yeah, it's a good name. You know, uh, looking at the website, I, I see how much you're uh, focused on uh, creating access point, uh, access points and offering resources to folks in, in Nigeria. I, I find that, you know, us in the States here is easy for us to take for granted the uh, different you know, issues when we're talking about resources or a lack of resources, I'm sure instruments are a thing and maybe even books. But I wonder in uh, doing this work, if you've been reminded of, you know, a, a lack of resources that we may not always think about, what, what, what have you found in trying to create uh, these access points and resources for folks in Nigeria? Oh, for like resources that people don't have in Nigeria? Right. Okay, so for one, music isn't commonly seen within public schools. So most of the people mm. that I've interacted with, they would either learn music through churches or informally, you know. Um, Handel, one of our alumni, he's mostly self-taught. So Handel has kind of had experiences to like be exposed to music, either through like virtual opportunities or just like hanging out with other violinists and learning from them. Okay. And then for the most part, you know, he may use YouTube as a resource. But it's, again, it's interesting how some people learn through not such a structure, through not such a structured way, but they learn through exposure to like, and it's really interesting, like just that, that self-taught process. Cause you would think, okay, if you play guitar, you can maybe learn by yourself. But Anu, she's another violinist in Nigeria. She's mostly self-taught, you know, and she's, she's good. You know, I feel like you see, you hear self-taught and you're like, okay, self-taught, but right, like, no, Anu's right. good. Like, and I'm just like, I, I feel like if I ever do a PhD, I, I would really want to understand what does that look like, you know, self-taught for like a classical instrument. Because I just yeah. feel like there's, there's got to be something in there. But some other aspects for like lack of resources, when people need to order instruments, it, like something like rosin for us, we can get it, you know, really quickly, Amazon. Hmm. But a lot of, um, you know, services don't ship to Nigeria. I think due to, again, in the past, I, you may have heard like the whole Nigerian prince like, oh, right, right. Yeah, so we <laughs> sometimes have a that. bad rap. So, for example, if someone needs to buy something, people in Nigeria can, can't can use PayPal. So they can't make a PayPal account. If they want to make a GoFundMe, they can't make a GoFundMe. If they want to use Amazon, it's very hard to use. Like, There's not a lot of access. So let, let's say for us, we can use Amazon and ship it. But for them, they can't. So the only options they have are stores in Nigeria. And sometimes those stores may not order from the best um, you know, retail shops. Mm -hmm. So now they have a limited access to things. And knowing that there's a limited access to things, those shops may charge, you know, a higher price because they know this is the only place they're going to get it from. And then, you know, it's not accessible for them. We've done some um, international shipping, but for us, we covered the costs to make it easier for them. But for if someone wanted to buy something, you know, internationally, what people often do is maybe buy in bulk. So they'll find other people who are trying to buy so that way they can lower that shipping cost. Yeah. But, so, so just so that I, uh, you know, un make sure that I'm understanding your organization uh, facilitates this by buying resources, buying supplies and sending them, sending them over. Or how does that work? How, how does the Nigerian violinist get that rosin that they need? Yeah. So, so we did a test run recently with just books to kind of like simplify, simplify the process. So, Everyone told us what books they were looking at to get, and we got those books. And then we used a service called SGK, which is based in Stafford, Texas. They ship to Nigeria via air freight. So we got the things, we packaged it, we shipped it to Texas. And then from Texas, SGK shipped it to Lagos. 
And then one of our team members picked it up in their warehouse. And then we just hand delivered because I'm not too familiar. Oh, I guess I don't trust um, the postal system that well in Nigeria. Okay. <laughs> I'd rather have one of our team members just deliver. So is that lack of trust based on personal experience? Have you made it back to Nigeria many times since you were a kid? No, I was supposed to go recently um, during before COVID happened. I mean, I was supposed to go, yeah, before COVID happened, but then COVID happened. But I'm actually going um, this Christmas and hopefully again in the summer for our, like we're hoping to do a, virt- a concert in person in the summer. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's phenomenal. I'm really fascinated by what you were saying about the means traditionally of learning music. It's not taught in the schools. You learn it in church or just uh, on on the streets, just just naturally. I wonder, you know, as you're creating access to classical music for folks, if there's any dissonance or if there's a barrier there in sort of teaching the value of music making. You know, this is something that is at the well, what, what, at least from in my experience, was at the core of my educational experience in kindergarten we had music class so you know the value of it all was ingrained in me is, is that a is that a challenge working with musicians who didn't have that same privilege um for me i know when we did our virtual mentorship program we asked everyone specifically what they were trying to work on so i knew everyone were at, was at different places so in knowing specifically what they were trying to improve on we tried to find teachers that would best suit that so if someone wanted to work on double stops just because I went to U of M, I, I kind of knew p- people in mind who maybe I've seen them perform. And when I think about them, they may always perform pieces that have like a bunch of double stops. That's or if someone's it. trying to work on like legato, I think about musicians who I've seen who tend to play like pieces that are like very maybe romantic or smooth. Or I just I think about people who I know who maybe have the skills to teach what they're trying to learn. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Um, again, back to the idea of and I'm, I'm I'm embarrassed to say the name because I just know I'm butchering it. But, you know, that meaning of Akojopo, you know, harmony, um, even yeah. on the on the deeper level. I wonder what role that uh, traditional Nigerian music must play in in your work. It's not strictly the the Western classical. I, I'm, I'm sure there's some sort of fusion there. Right. I, for our, we, did, we recently, I'll put this in the in the chat. So recently, for our virtual concert, we did. My focus was just showcasing pieces by Nigerian co- composers. So I'll put in the chat right now, and you can check it out later on. But if you watch it, you know all the pieces that we featured were by Nigerian composers in Nigeria, and all the performers except for one who had a special relationship um, with the composer in Nigeria were also from Nigeria. So all the pieces you you would listen to. You know, they're a mixture of um, some classical instruments, but also if you look at the last piece by um, Johnson, um, his piece uses um, the djembe, a singer, piano, and cello. Okay. So that kind of implements like this African mix. And some of them are piano and vocal works entirely in Yoruba. So yeah, that's kind of our focus. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't like I was directing that. I was like, hey, what pieces do you have from your culture that you want to share? So yeah. 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 I'll be sure to uh, include that link for uh, for everyone to see. I'm I'm curious about audiences. Now you talk about this musical fusion. Are there have have you seen uh, this work well received by non musicians in Nigeria? Is there an audience for this music? I think so. So I can kind of share like (laughs) we've we've been doing our our fundraiser. And like at first I was like, okay, this is nonprofit. This is going to be very tricky. And our fundraiser hadn't been going as good as I thought. But recently we had a donation from someone in Nigeria and they they donated about, I think, like 
100,000 Naira, which when you convert it to US dollars, it's about $200. And okay. we were really thankful because when we asked them, you know, how did they find out about a Kojic Ball, someone who was in the concert shared it. And they were not a musician. They were just a Nigerian who were an arts lover. They're in like the field of accounting. And that was insane because that was our first donor in Nigeria ever. So I do think there is an interest for musicians who maybe who who aren't for people who aren't musicians. I think you just need to be a lover of the arts, a lover of music. So yeah, yeah. I wonder about, you know, you you mentioned funding and I really appreciate how transparent uh you are on the website about, you know, the funding and and uh, where different uh, you know, funds are spent and that sort of thing. Uh, are, are there other challenges, you know, that we don't typically think about in working internationally? Can can a person just go to the website and make a donation or are there other steps that they have to go through or other considerations that we should be thinking about? Yeah, so I, I'll say the biggest factor in like working in Nigeria, for example, when we look at grants a lot, a lot of the grants that we try and find, they're typically not tailored toward, towards what we're trying to do. Most of the grants we find, maybe Nigeria, are focused more on like agriculture, health, um, education that's maybe not music related. Yeah. But I'll, wait, oh my gosh, I just went blank. What was your question again? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no worries. Like like the, the money challenges and in working oh. internationally. Yeah. So one challenge that we have is oftentimes when we ask for donations, for me, I think it would be so good if at least some of our donor base is from Nigeria, because I feel like that's the community we're trying to represent. Yeah. But I also understand that Nigeria has, you know, there's poverty within the country, but there's also like, like it's, it's so tricky because like there is a lower class, but there's also an upper class and the middle class is slowly starting to like thin away. You mm. know, I feel like Sometimes you meet people who, you know, they've lived a life with, where they don't have a lot of resources. And sometimes you meet people who have all the resources they they want. So for us, you know, when we ask for donations, I'm sincerely asking people both in U.S. and Nigeria. And I'm not expecting that people in Nigeria, you know, will like, like, for example, if you are in a financial burden, I'm not expecting you to donate. But I, I want to just give you that option. You know, I don't want to assume sure. that all of our donors are just going to be like, rich white people, you know, I want to, even if someone is in Nigeria, I want to just give them the opportunity and the access to donate if they choose to, if that makes sense. I I think it could be a bad, it'll just just look bad if we're like, we're trying to support Nigerians, but you know, we don't think they have the money to donate. So why even give them that, that choice? So. Yeah. Yeah. I I understand that. But but what do you say to the person, even the American person who comes up to you and says, well, I can donate toward creating musical access for Nigerians, or I can provide funding to people who, who need food. How, how do you, you know, uh, how, how do you engage that concern? Yeah. And that's a valid concern. I, I, I remember when I started a culture about, well, what if our team members asked, you know, why are you doing music? You know, there's so many other issues going on in Nigeria, but for me, I just feel like, okay, when I look at myself, okay, I'm Nigerian, I'm a musician. Like if I wanted to build some kind of health clinic, I'm not the person. I don't have the, I don't have the skills. I don't have the resources. I don't have the connection. But when I think about what I do have, I'm a music educator and you also have to do something you're passionate about. You know, you have to do something very passionate. And when I see other Nigerian musicians trying to do what, you know, what we do, I get really excited. And it's not like I don't get excited about like, you know, helping feed people, but Mm -hmm. I just don't think I have as much connections and resources to do that. 
But when it comes to like music, I just think when we ask donors, I just ask them, you know, do you do you have a passion for the arts like outside of the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Do you like music from other cultures? And I just try and tell the story of a culture ball from other people's experiences. And, you know, fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's not like I'm asking you not to donate to things related to food. Like, please do. But, you know, there are other aspects to Nigeria, you know, like not everyone's in poverty. You know, there are other people doing other fields. So I just kind of want to bring light to that. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sorry that, you know, the conversation always seems to come back to money, but that's just one of the realities we live in. I I wonder, you know, again, if you could sort of speak to um, funding issues when it comes to this work, I guess right now what I'm thinking of specifically are different American grants. So if there's if if there's a grant uh, out there to uh, help, I don't know, marginalized youth or or at risk youth or, or whatever, do you find that you're eligible for those grants? Are there pathways, you know, in the traditional funding uh, spaces for what you're doing? Um, There are. I know I applied for Echoing Green, but I, I didn't get accepted. That was one avenue. And we looked at some of the grants that they did share. But when we looked at the past people who were funded, especially in Africa, like it was always something related to like, you know, agriculture or something like poverty related, which yeah. is great. I'm glad they're doing that kind of work. But right now, when we were looking at some things that we could do for fundraising, I think we're leaning towards like corporate sponsorships and trying to find, you know, people who run businesses who are willing to support us. But if anyone knows any grants that they're like, hey, you should do apply for this, please let us know. <laughs> but <laughs> we haven't had, you know, too much successes um, with grants right now. Yeah, I think that's a story for a lot of people. Unfortunately, they can either be so specific or so vague to where, you know, you don't know if you you really fit in. But but it sounds like there are some pathways. I did see on your uh, website that there you know are some considerable donations and uh, some considerable uh, outcomes of, of those donations. Yeah. And right now we're trying to apply as a as a 501c3 and we can use an, a 1023 easy form. Mm-hmm. We don't anticipate we'll be making I think it's more than 30,000. No, I think it's either 30000 or 50000 in the next three or five years. Okay. So that will alleviate the cost of filing and also speed up the process. But through that, then we could apply for some corporate um, sponsorships. Yeah, all, all these rules that you have to learn and memorize when you <laughs> as, as you move forward. Uh, right. So so what's the, the big goal when the work of your organization is done? What will the musical ecosystem in Nigeria look like? For me, wow, like if we live in an ideal world, I think it would be so cool if like, because right now there are a lot of Nigerians who live abroad Mm -hmm. because either, you know, there's just more resources abroad. I think simply like they can just they can advance in their careers more. But I just think, you know, when we think about like teachers or stuff, it would be cool if those people could either, you know, visit or there could be a reoccurring like, you know, program in which, you know, Nigerians are teaching Nigerians because there are people who are qualified, but they're abroad, you know, and Mm -hmm. they may come back every once in a while. They may not come back because of like financial issues, but it would be really cool if the ecosystem was just Nigerians teaching Nigerians. But all we did was just provide resources. So if someone needs help with getting a quality instrument or a teacher, we just provide aid with that. Or if someone needs um, help with, 
maybe they got into a school and they're, for example, if you get into a school abroad, it's very tricky if you're Nigerian, because let's say you get into like a school in the UK or US, like the Naira currency doesn't work well. So like coming to the US is really expensive because your currency doesn't, you know, work well. So I imagine like just living, you know, to some aspect could be more difficult than someone who maybe came from China and Europe because their currency has more equivalency. But I think our end goal is just to provide just more resources. It would be cool if we had like a school in Lagos where we brought in teachers who are maybe mm-hmm. abroad or teachers in Nigeria and we just taught, you know, music. Like it would be so great if music was in public schools, but man, that's I don't want to get involved with like the government. <laughs> a little bit politics, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be great if like music was available. And yeah, if music was available. Yeah. I understand what you're speaking to when you talk about more resources abroad. When I think about the intersection of Western classical music in Nigeria, the first name that comes to mind is uh, Fela Sawandi. But I understand that, you know, he, uh, you know, cultivated a career in England and then went on to Canada. And, you know, that that's that's how that was able to happen. But, you know, I wonder if there are uh, any other names, maybe a composer or some music that you can put folks on to for, you know, we Westerners to broaden our own perspective on what's happening in Nigeria music wise. Oh, there's like, let me see. I, I, I'm just going to plug our concert. I'm going to plug our concert because like the theme was past, present and future. So the first two pieces that you you would hear, let me see, let me, it's been a, so yeah, the first two pieces that you would, okay, yeah, so the first piece is Akin Uba's um, Six Yoruba Songs, and that's from the past. And the next one is Yoruba Trifector from Dr. Ariel Lawrence. He lives in the U.S. That's from the present. He's, he's alive, very well alive. And then if we keep going, we have Fred O., and his piece, um, the two violin songs, he's very much alive. And then we keep going. And then we have people who I kind of said, boy, like the future. They're people maybe around our age. But mm-hmm. I, I will plug our concert. Too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll make sure that we hear some of that uh, to transition out of this uh, interview. Before I ask you um, the last question I have for you, um, how can folks learn more about Akojopo, donate and, and offer up whatever resources they can toward your goal? I would say, let me, let me plug the, on Instagram, we are at a MF and then Facebook. Let me put our link. I would say just follow, <laughs> follow and we will try and communicate everything. Like right now I'll, I'll kind of like, like our, our fundraising goal is, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to raise 7,500. We only raised $500. So um, our goal is for, the rest of this year is to figure out if we can raise as much as possible to complete our um, 2022 programming. So I know my birthday is coming up on September 28th. So I was going to, you know, make a little birthday campaign. Yeah, sure. <laughs> a goal of like $500. So I'll probably post that on the social media. But after that, I'm running the Ann Arbor Marathon in October. I'm hoping to raise some money through running that marathon. After that, Giving Tuesday, November. And then after that, our goal is come up with some kind of holiday campaign. But hopefully through those four initiatives, we can get closer to our goal amount. Yeah, 
Well, we'll make sure everyone uh, follows to make sure that we keep up with all of these uh, campaigns that you have. So, you know, my my last question for you, uh, as I was learning about you, reading about you, I appreciated that you made a point to mention Nigerian food in your bio. And that's kind of where we uh, started today. So to tie it back around, I wonder, um, you know, what Black Americans or any Americans should be looking for if we really want to get a taste of of Nigeria. Are, are there dishes that you recommend? What do we need to go look for? I think a good dish to start off, like a safe dish that most people like is jollof rice. That's a that's a pretty like, you know, entry level. Um, OK, <laughs> I, I would say medium level is like. Let me think. Medium levels, I'll probably say medium level is like rice and stew with some goat meat. That's that's okay. medium. And if you try and get like real like OG like baba like like old I don't know like the old generation, I'll say yeah. get some amala. That's I don't even eat that. That's like that's the <laughs> kind of food my my dad and his friends eat when they're hanging. I don't. Let me let me. I don't know what he, I don't even know what stew. I think it's a wudu. A wudu, yeah, I'm not in a wudu stew. I I, I don't like it. But that <laughs> that's some advanced Nigerian repertoire. I, I don't. But Niger jollof rice is beginner. I'll say rice and stew and goat meat. That's like medium. And then amala. That's not that's not even for me. I, I'm uh, hey I'm if I find myself at a Nigerian restaurant I'm gonna jump in the deep end and see if I can't find some amala. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I feel like if you eat amala you age like fifty years. I oh just, really? <laughs> I, I just I I don't I don't know. I'm sure maybe young Nigerians eat it, but I just feel like it's an old people kind of food. Like it's like, <laughs> it's like for the 60, 70 euros like i don't i don't be eating them. i gotcha <laughs> well to to uh, bridging cultures uh food wise and uh music wise daniel thank you so much for uh talking with me today oh thank you so much garrett thank you so much again i'm gonna go eat make dinner now so I think that's fun. A nice, a bright piece of music, a, a fresh piece of music. It's cheery. Yeah, that one's called Trifecta Yorubana, a piece of music by Dr. Ayo Oluranti, a part of um, Akojopo's virtual concert from uh, 2021, August of uh, 2021. I'll have a link to that. Um, a, a really great hour's worth of uh, music that, you know, comes from a place that we don't always think about when we think about Western classical music and a concert put on for uh, a really, really, really great cause. So I want to thank uh, Daniel Kumapayi for coming on Triloquy. Let's, let's rally around this. Let's, let's all find 
some let's all find five dollars you know you you were talking about at your job it's pledge drive season so you've <laughs> you've inspired me let's put five dollars toward uh making more of this music possible for folks over there in nigeria i'll, I'll have uh links uh in the description of this really really incredible uh for me to 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 learn about this and be able to uh feature this on triloquy mm -hmm. um as we we ended a little there you know my conversation with daniel talking about some uh nigerian food and i'm not sure if uh there are any any Nigerian restaurants here in the Twin Cities. But sure. when we're talking about the motherland, uh, there are lots of Somali uh, restaurants. That's sort of a thing. Have you ever eaten any of this uh, East African food that, sure. that's here in the Twin Cities? Yeah, there was uh, a time when my friend Scott Working, shout out Scott Working, was in town and he went with me and my girlfriend at the time, shout out to Lynn. Uh, we... We wanted to go and find a place where we could sit and have injera and goat and some lentils, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I love being able to just use the bread on the tray as the vessel to yeah. scoop all of this into my mouth. Yeah. But they didn't have that at this place. <laughs> okay. Oh, so you had a plan. So, <laughs> right. So we show up at this place about six o'clock and there's nobody around. And it's a huge venue, and it's all done up like they're waiting for a wedding reception or something like mm -hmm. that. And it's the three of us with all of these chafing dishes full of food. And for some reason, I grab like a lamb leg. It's like <laughs> this huge leg of something. And they're like that lamb was for everyone. And just <laughs> and just as uh, we're, we're I I couldn't get anywhere close to eating the whole thing, but I've touched it, so I have to take it. Yeah. And I can remember sitting there and looking over at Scott and saying, how, how much food do you think they have to sell to cover the nut on this place? How much do you think? Because there was nobody around. Yeah. So we, we pay up, leave, go have a couple pints. And by the time we come out, the sun had gone down and it was Ramadan. Oh, so it was packed after Sunday. It was jumping. I hope y'all didn't have folks. Well, I mean, I guess you're not supposed to eat before sundown, but they can prepare the food before sundown. Well, yeah, and we were white people. They didn't think that we were celebrating Ramadan, so they <laughs> sold it to us, you know, like, hey, great. They're like, fine, give the lamb to those heathens over there eating so, with the sun up. Right. <laughs> I need to I need to experience some of that. The, the world's basically open now, so I, I, we, yeah. we have access to that sort of thing here, we so do. I need to, I need to jump do. on it. All right, well, uh, to get us into the uh, fourth movement, you know, we've, we've been uh, listening to some trills, you know, some actual musical trills to get us into the triloquy movement. So the piece of music that I premiered by Marcus Norris in Chicago this past uh, weekend is called uh, Miss Me. The the the, the program notes, I, I really love the subtext. It's uh, miss me when I'm gone, miss me with the bullshit, miss me, now you, ha now you gotta kiss me. So it's <laughs> like different, you know, a, a play on on those words and and everything and you know all of the the uh the shade therein i would say but <laughs> but it's it starts with uh and the bassoon part some really cool trills and uh, someone in the audience took a little uh, cell phone video of the performance so we're going to listen to a, a little uh, of my bassoon trilling here to get us into the fourth movement again miss me an excerpt of it here by marcus norris <laughs> Thank you. 
And shout out to uh, John Batoy on the piano there, assisting at the piano. Again, it's, it's always just so incredible to be in community with black folk playing black music, you know, the music of a young yeah. black composer. And nice. there's no respectability. You know, what what did we have on? What we wanted to wear? Yeah. I was in there on this, with, with this floral thing. So just these liberated experiences and um, and performances, they, they fill me back up. This was actually my first solo performance uh, officially, probably I think before I moved here to Minnesota in, in a few years. So three so, years, huh? Yeah, I was uh, really honored to again to have been invited by Adrian Dunn, and uh, it's got me looking forward to this concerto I got coming up at the end of. The and month. did the airline treat you right with your carry-on bassoon? Uh, I I had to I had to force my way through, but you know, we we the bassoonists and, and instrumentalists in general know that we have to argue with the, mm. the flight people sometimes so all right. <laughs> all right well we are here in the uh fourth movement again you know we, we gotta we gotta you know get trill we gotta get trill here so how about you take it away you you, you actually had some 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 issues to share on saturday night i left work at midnight and all the I started heading in one direction, and cop cars were heading in the complete opposite direction. There was a shooting, not not just a shooting. There was a shootout at a bar called Truck Park Bar on West Seventh in downtown St. Paul. One woman died, fourteen people mm-hmm. injured. And this morning on CNN, I heard our mayor commenting to the anchor on CNN for the you know I caught the last end of the interview. And something stuck out. He said, this is unusual. We are not used to this. Uh, Something to that effect. He went on for a little bit about um, this was uh, a tragic event that we just don't see. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I would like to invite you to my house on the east side some evening. We'll we'll have a couple beers. Trust me, they're good. Mm -hmm. But we can sit out and we can count the number of shots fired that we hear the number of uh, cars racing at 75, 80 miles an hour up and down the residential street next to my house. We can listen to people doing Brodies in intersections. It is on the east side every night, Mr. Mayor. And it's on the east side every night. To this day! To this day. <laughs> they do a little bit of shooting over here on the west side. I, I, I know every, not everyone is here uh, is from St. Paul or familiar with, with uh, St. Paul, but it's one, I, I think, you know, historically speaking, when we talk about the mayor, you know, the black mayor here whose family is from here, there have been a lot of people who have talked to me about the specific black neighborhoods that they grew up in and how the perspective of being, you know, in, in a more affluent and yes, uh, you know, predominantly black part of town, but very solidly middle class black part of town can really alter one's perspective on what's really going on. And I don't know the race of the people who were over there shooting. I didn't even hear about the thing that that's how, you know, in, in my own world I am. It's Dell who who told me, did you hear about this thing? But, you know, it's 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 something that this happened, you know, prayers to uh, the family and everyone involved. I was prepared to come in here and talk about the shooting at the school down in Texas that has happened uh, last week. But, you know, not to diminish any of these incidents, these are all tragedies. But as 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 we're seeing, and again, it's not news, it's not new news anymore, but guns, guns are going to gun. And 
it's it's becoming easier and easier to just go get one in more parts of the country. You know, down there in Texas, um, all you need, and I learned this, it's official, all you need is a, a Texas ID and to be 21 and up. And you can go and buy you an assault rifle or, or, or whatever you need. And, and here we are with shootouts. Folks, you can't even go out. Um, to the bar on a on a Saturday night, I can't even go have a drink because they out here shooting, and and I want to make sure that I'm very clear. I want to make you know I, I'm I'm not playing the oh somebody's from the hood or this happens here that's on the east side that's on the west side. I feel like this is something that's going on everywhere. Um, on the the Grand Avenue corridor, you know, again for folks who don't live in St. Paul, that's that's one of the older money neighborhoods. The yep. mayor's mansion is over there, you know, and and they shoot over there sometime. So I don't think this is at all an issue of and someone died over there as a matter of fact at the bar over there but i don't think this is an issue of um good neighborhood or bad neighborhood when it comes to the actual crime happening the actual shooting you know murder violence happening i think maybe perspective as far as where people grew up or where they're from where they live is one thing but the actual violence is happening everywhere not only in every part different neighborhoods you know here in minnesota the twin cities but Mm -hmm. across the country and 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 we have to it, maybe it's too late. You know, again, I, I, I'm thinking about right now that, uh, again, the music I, I brought in from 28 Days Later, just that pitiful ending. We're just getting to the fact where mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're just going to kill each other. We're yeah. just going to shoot each other down. I, I, it's, it's hard for me to think about what I'm going to shoot somebody over. What, what am I going to shoot them for? That that's always the question I ask myself when it's time for me to think about getting a, a gun permit or going to the range or whatever. I don't I don't really know w- what is worth me shooting somebody. I mean, as much as I would never want to just hand somebody my bassoon or something who's trying to rob me. I mean, that's the most valuable thing to me that I can think of. I'm I'm not sure if I'm gonna shoot for that or take a life for that, but. I don't, or maybe I need to get over it in this new world we're living in where we have shootouts. No, I have the same thing. I have the, the, the same hesitations and reservations. Um, and I also don't mean to say that my end of town is any worse than any other, because like you said, there are places where people are living that have money and people are getting shot there too. Right. But I speak from my perspective of the East Side, and I still love the East Side. You know, it is still my home, and I just... I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying about it, other than you know, Mr. Mayor, that was not a hundred percent a genuine comment that you made on national. And to news. be clear, the shooting, you know, the shooting that made national news, it happened downtown. In, I mean, that's not, you know, that part of Gentra- Street is not the hood. Five. Yeah, that's totally gentrified. You know, I can't afford to live mm. over there in those condos <laughs> and apartments. No. So again, this is not, oh, it's those folks over there in the hood shooting each other. No, we we need to we need to continue to revisit this gun conversation because that that's th- this is what's going to happen guns will gun the whole argument of you know uh guns don't kill people people kill people look the gun helps you know but <laughs> I, I, I sigh because what 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 is there left to say what number of people need to die for us to do something now we can shift that over to covid aren't we up to 700,000 people here in the united states mm-hmm. if, if we aren't there mm-hmm. I, you know, I haven't been watching the cable news but if we aren't there i'm sure we're close and that's still not enough for people to you know put on a mask or to 
you know, do, do, do whatever, you know, get the vaccine, do whatever you have to do to, to mitigate the spread of this thing. That's not enough. So, so maybe we won't see enough death from gun violence to revisit that conversation. I'm not trying to tell people to get a gun or not to get a, I, I, I think the pro or anti gun conversation is relatively irrelevant when you just look at the fact that there's just unnecessarily unnecessary violence that's going on by way of gunfire and, mm-hmm. and gun violence. So stay safe out there every stay safe out there, everyone, because folks are not right. Folks' mentals are not right, still coming out of quarantine. Folks are desperate. It's we're getting into the um holiday season. It's 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 a mess out here. So do what you gotta do to to keep comfortable. What I do to keep comfortable is, is to stay in this in, in this house of mine. <laughs> I like to stay at home. Yep. <laughs> um quickly I've been I've been giving Chicago a lot of flowers. You know, um, you know, because I had a great time, great food. I, I don't think I talked about the Chicago pizza. It was it was a lot. I could only eat one slice, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I waited my forty five minutes and got my deep dish. You know how you supposed to? I got it from Gino's East. I don't know how um, touristy or not that is, but it wasn't so crowded in there. So th- that's what made me feel good. But um, Illinois dispensaries are bullshit. <laughs> Say more. It's like a 32 or 34 percent tax on all cannabis products. But then it's not like when you go to Colorado, you can just go in and see what they got and, you know, um, shop around or whatever. You have to just like type in what you want based on their like on an iPad or something. And then you're let into the room and it's cash only. So you got to, you know, uh, bring your debit card and do all that. It seems like all of these steps. And this isn't just based on my trip to Chicago. When I was visiting uh, my sister in uh, St. Louis a couple months back, uh, she te- technically she lives in O'Fallon, Illinois, uh, where the uh, military base is. So mm-hmm. I, I bought some cannabis over there. So I've, I've had the cannabis buying dispensary experience in Illinois and two different places and it's just too expensive it's it's too locked up you need to get it from the streets and when i think about my experience i'm thinking about somebody at the top making all of this money and we are completely erasing folks who have have will never have the ability to open up those shops and follow all those rules so i mean listen my 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 quick advice to all of the cannabis users if you go to illinois see if you can uh, find someone that can hook you up on the street because the dispensaries don't deserve your money not not for the prices that they're doing and i'm not just saying uh you know it's just too expensive but like all those taxes you'll end up paying a hundred dollars for you know something that isn't really worth it in any other state in any other place i just Mm. i just don't like the way that they have um just shifted cannabis in that way this this is a medicine that's supposed to help us and and we're commodity we're beginning to commodify it in a way that's just bullshit by the time i'm an old man and you can just buy your joint at walgreens it's just it's not even gonna be like like what we use to you know I wonder to, to help us or to, you know, to recreation us or whatever. You know, some of the old hippies, even these days talk about, oh, the weed at Woodstock, y'all wouldn't even, you know, it it, it was better and da 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 and blah. And, mm. but yeah, and then to that, you know, I guess while we're on this little conversation, I've heard that um, they have confirmed uh, fentanyl being sprayed on some of this weed and the, and the fentanyl is killing people. So, you know, 
uh, as in the same way I was saying, stay Don't safe about that. right. In the same way I was saying, st- stay safe about these guns. If you're a cannabis user, stay safe about that. If you see a a, a hundred fifty dollar ounce, you know, think twice because you never know. Make sure that you oh trust God. your people, the the folks you're going through. It's it's something else out here. But I just wanted to name that because that was the one thing about my trip to Chicago that just really just soured me a little bit the experience of of going to a dispensary i'd get seedlings i i I, I got a little i got a little pen from them but you know i wasn't about to just drop all that money in there for that because that that's inequitable i get seedlings and and start to grow yep they uh i saw on one documentary that uh spritzing with skim milk is is good for flour Hmm. so if you're if you're trying to grow try the skim milk (laughs) uh anyway uh last triloquy look scott why are people just dedicated to dying on the hill of Columbus Day all over my social media and not my personal feeds? But I'll I'll read a story about um, Indigenous Peoples Day or, or something that uh, is being celebrated specifically for this day. And in the and I know we need to stay out the comment section, but it's, it's an important place to check up on over and over and over and over again. You just have people typing happy Columbus Day, happy Columbus Day. Why are you trying to erase history? You can't change history, da, 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 blah, blah, blah. Why, why are people just dead? As I said, dedicated to dying on this hill of Columbus Day, no matter how many times we've, we have the conversation, what? no matter how many of his statues we tear down. What, what I think it's over is having to come to grips with the idea of what you grew up with, what you were taught is inaccurate. <laughs> Period. And that... I, and, and I'm that, not saying that's not challenging because we have all had to face right? that in, some, exactly. in certain ways, but that is some bullshit. In the same way in kindergarten, they set us around the picnic table and put a fake, uh, uh, what they called Indian headdress on us. And some of them were dressed as pilgrims. And this was the first Thanksgiving, da, da, da. You know, all of these bullshit, inaccurate stories that they taught us about indigenous people, A, you know, proves how nefarious the the system really is teaching this to kinder to children you know to children right and then b you know how we have to question everything we've learned in music certainly but across the board so if columbus is bad and you have been taught this coming up that he's this wonderful explorer pursuing manifest destiny yada 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 and people say, no, he committed genocide. <laughs> uh, he enslaved people in the in the southern islands, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, I don't think by, he even made it to like what is now what they now call the continental United States. Like did, I, I thought it was all Caribbean, West Indies. Yeah, they're down in the Indies. And yeah. thought he was an he died believing he had made it to Asia. Right, right. So that's your king. That's and, your hero. That's your hero. And there was, you know, there was no golden spices there to bring back. Right. So you got to bring back something. And here was all these, you know, really <laughs> great people. He said they're great people. Oh. Um, but yeah, mm. so the only thing that I can figure is that it somehow makes them feel uh, like they're wrong. Like what, they, what they've grown up believing is wrong and maybe by proxy you're a racist or a bigot or a whatever a genocider i think all of the columbus statues are are down <laughs> mm. uh I, I 
and I only laugh and, you know, we don't have to go into the nuances of it all because I, I feel like this conversation has been happening over and over again. My first Indigenous People's Day as a radio host down in Tennessee, you know how I give it up. So it was three hours of not only Indigenous music, but Western compositions. You know, there exist, Scott, Western compositions that speak to um, the arrival of Christopher Columbus as this dangerous thing. So mm. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not remembering the composers now. I'm not going to look it up. But even if you want to stick with sound or include sounds that, you know, your most racist of audience members would call, you know, Indian music or whatever, you know, even if you even if you want to uh, include the, the more traditional Western European sounds, there are compositions that can speak to that as well and and we just get so lazy and you know uh get back into oh it's just columbus day woke politically correct da 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 blah 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 uh i you know i've said it here before i'll, I'll say it again the land acknowledgement and the land take back conversation is one that i'm ready to be involved in very very directly the music by j25 that you brought in she was talking about take it back land back you know land back the the, the conver this conversation is not going away and i think it's really going to develop over over the coming years um again in the uh what first movement you were talking about uh land expansions being made so some land is is being given back i asked the question and, and scott you don't have to answer it here but you know everyone listening especially to the homeowners when um, the ancestors of the indigenous people whose land you live on come knocking on your door and demand their land back, what will you do and where will you go? Okay, we need to begin to think about how radically we need to change things and changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day is one thing, but there's a lot more coming. And I welcome it. Uh, the I wanted to you know also mention <laughs> before we dismissed. We need to bring the same energy to Thanksgiving. What do you think about that? All right. We need to we, we we need to stop gathering round and having a feast for the genocide of races of people. I mean, I, I think also, you know, we diminish the idea of indigenous people as one so-called American indigenous people, but these are many different languages, many different traditions, many different musical traditions. You know, when I was talking to Jared Tate on Triloquy, he was talking about how his people uh, musically dealt more with shakers and turtle shells and things. Mm -hmm. And then you have the indigenous traditions that are uh, very reliant on the drum. And then you have Native American flute music and all of that stuff. So all of these different cultures that were intentionally destroyed and we're having a feast for it we'll we'll revisit this conversation in 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 a few weeks when when it comes so-called thanksgiving time but i just wanted to introduce that and and encourage people to begin to think about what it means to have a feast day for the uh for the destruction of many 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 millions countless indigenous people that's something we need to think about but you know indigenous people's day and acknowledging and celebrating on this day um instead of columbus i think is a is a really great start so I'm off to New York this weekend, so next week I'm going to bring back Travel <laughs> something safe. from the Met. Travel I, safe. I, I, hope, I hope to have good things to say, but, you know, we, we, we've, we've talked a lot about the Met on this podcast, so it's going to be a fun sure week next week for sure. See y'all next week.